Thanks, Wilson. Well, thank you so much. It's so good to be here, not just here, but back home. We have been, <laughs> let's see, July started out with, I uh, had a couple trips, or no, June, I had a couple trips uh, back east. My brother graduated, and then we had back-to-back weeks with family camp and kids camp, so we were up in the mountains for a while, and then we spent the last two and a half weeks uh, road tripping up to Canada and back, and that is quite the trek. We've done that before, but it's been five years or six years since we've done it, and it reminded me why we don't go every year. So it's, <laughs> and, I, and I love road trips, and it's, it's still a long one. So, uh, but let me open up a prayer, and then we will jump into the message for today. So, <clears throat> Father, we just thank you that we can be here today, Lord. We just thank you that you have set aside uh, a Sabbath for us, Lord. We thank you that we can be here on a Sunday morning and just have this opportunity to be with, uh, with friends and family, Lord, and other believers, Lord. We thank you that we can be here with the intent of worshiping you. God, I just pray that as we jump into your word today, Lord, that, that you will speak to us. God, I pray that our, hearts, uh, that our hearts will be ripe, Lord, to receive what you have for us, Lord. The hidden truths, Lord, that you've weaved all throughout Scripture, Lord, uh, they all point to something, Lord, and they point to a, a redemptive plan that you have for us, Father. So I pray that we, we, catch that, uh, we catch that message from you today, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. So do you remember when you were uh, a kid in Sunday school and, you know, let's say like, I don't know, eight, nine, ten years old? And at least for me, I was the kid in Sunday school who was always poking the kid next to me. I was always, you know, if the, if the teacher said something funny or if she put up a, a flannel, one of those flannel things that just looked, you know, funny, I had to make the comment. So, but there was more, more often than not, on a, on a regular weekly basis, the teacher, I'd be goofing off with the kid next to me and then I would hear the teacher say, isn't that right, Jacob? And just then your, your head shoots up and your eyes get really big and you're like, oh no, oh no, oh no. And then they would ask you a question about the, what they were talking about and you'd sit there with that dumbfounded look on your face for about what seemed like 30 seconds, even though it was probably just two seconds. And the one thing that always worked, she's like, can you, just, can you tell the rest of the class what we're talking about today? The one thing that always worked and you would, that one answer rolled off your tongue and what was it? It was Jesus. And 99 times out of 100, you were going to be right because no matter what it was you were talking about, somehow it was going to point to Jesus. And as we've gone through the, the Old Testament this whole summer, you know, talking about creation and Noah and Moses, somehow the correct answer always is Jesus because we're seeing how it all points to Jesus. And we're going to talk about that today. So, um, as some of you have seen and followed our journey this summer, you know, from family camp to kids camp, um, you know, watching Nate get hurt and he's got his arm still in a little temporary cast and we've been up and down the coast. We, on the way to Canada, we took the interior route. So we went all the way through uh, Las Vegas, then straight up through Nevada and through Idaho and the, the tips of Oregon and Washington. Um, through Nevada is a crazy stretch. There's, we call them these suicidal bunnies, just like little jackrabbits that would just hop across the road. <laughs> and there were dead rabbits everywhere. It was crazy. <laughs> and Julie got to do that stretch. There was one time where I took over near the tail end, and I was like, oh, no. And she's like, what? And I'm like, I think I hit a bunny. And <laughs> I didn't run him over, but he was under the, car, the truck and just enough to, like, shoot him out. And I look in the mirror, and he's doing a little spin, and I'm like... You know, it just felt awful. And so on the, on the way home, we drove down the coast, and we've gone uh, back and forth to visit Julie's parents so many times. And this time, we're like, you know, let's take the Oregon coast, 
knowing full well it was going to add, you know, hours to every day of our drive, but so worth it, you know, so beautiful. And, but while we were in Canada, you know, we didn't know whether we were going to stay one week, two weeks, three weeks. I just knew I had to be back for today because Wilson, you know, had me slotted in to speak. So, <laughs> and I, th- I think I missed the last one. I was supposed to speak uh, sometime in July and I was like, I can't bail on him twice. So no matter how long we're in Canada, we have to be back the first week of August. So we, we rolled in here on Wednesday. And, but while we were there, everybody was asking, you know, what are you going to speak on? And once again, my answer was, was Jesus. So today we get to talk about... <laughs> We actually get to talk about Jesus, all these little hints and subplots that we've been exploring through the Old Testament. Today, we finally get to hear about Jesus. And so I wanted to start out like we normally do in typical fashion with a couple of questions. So go ahead and you know, start to make eye contact with the people around you. We're going to put you in groups of two or three. And we've got a couple questions here up on the screen for you. Uh, the first one is just, what is the the biggest financial debt that you've ever had to face? You know, it might be college loans, a mortgage, an auto loan. And then talk about how long did it take to pay that off? Or maybe you're in the early stages of just starting to face that huge payoff period. And then secondly, go ahead and talk about, have you ever had to use a credit card or borrow money to cover another debt? So go ahead and take about four or five minutes and and talk about that fun topic. All right, so by a show of hands, by a show of hands, how many of you had student loans or something to do with education in there as your, your number one debt? Wow. I actually have a, a friend who is a, a professor of theology right now, and he originally was just going to go to school, you know, do his four years, then he added a master's, then he went got a second master's. And what happened, he ended up getting about 12 to 14 years of education, but it was mainly because he kept prolonging you know, when he was going to have to start his payment. So he knew that as long as he was enrolled, then, then things wouldn't click in. So he, he kept accruing more and more student debt is a measure of, you know, just postponing his original four-year debt. So, I mean, it's working out. He, he's doing good, but still, he's got about 12 years of college debt now that he's eventually going to have to pay off. How many of you uh, had to do your biggest debt being a mortgage? A couple hands out there. Uh, for some of you younger people, how about your biggest debt, maybe an auto loan or a credit card, something of that nature. So, um, so many times in life, you know, you, you, your vision is so big and you think, wow, you know, what I need to do, I need to go to school, you know, need to have a car, you know, you can't go to college without a car, you know, and, and then you can't get, you know, can't, definitely can't get a girlfriend without a car and definitely can't get married, you know, and then, so then you, you're like, okay, now we're married, we need a house, so you get a house, and throughout your life, while you're doing what you think you need to be doing, you're just accruing and accruing and accruing this, this debt in the hopes that one day we'll all be paid off. My dad, uh, he's in his early 70s, and throughout his life, he just accrued and accrued and accrued debt, and I mean, he, they are, when they first bought their home, it was a $70,000 home, but they refinanced so many times that I still think today they owe about $70,000 on it. And he even had several other uh, rental properties and investment properties, and so he always had a payment due somewhere. And all it would take is one or two tenants not paying a, a bill, and now he's stuck with that bill. And so one statement that he always said to me growing up is like, sometimes you have to rob Peter to pay Paul. And what that meant was like, you had, you had a debt here, so you're going to borrow from somewhere else to pay that debt. And about every six months, he was transferring his credit cards from one to now a 0%, where he got 0% for another six months. And he was just always, he was the master of just managing his money and moving it around. 
but really never paying it. You know, it was just always transferring things around and moving and shuffling it around. And so many times, you know, we end up doing the, the same thing. And there have been times in my life where I've had to use, um, where I've had to borrow money just to pay a credit card bill. I've even, you know, called my brothers before and was like, I've got this bill due, you know, can, is there a way that you can just send me 200, you know, 200 bucks or $400? And so now I still owe that debt. It's just owed to a different place. And so, so many times we're, we're kind of shifting because we're trying to compensate and, and pay for something that is owed. And so uh, I want to talk today, obviously, about Jesus. So first off, how did we get to Jesus? So remember back with creation, you know, God doesn't just create randomly. He creates with a purpose. And he created with a purpose... Um, you know, after he creates the animals, the trees, the waters, he actually creates mankind. And he has a plan for us. He, he wants us to be in fellowship with him, and he wants us to worship him. And as we go through the Genesis account, we're like, wow, that plan did not last very long at all. Because so soon after that, you know, there's the fall and sin enters the world. And so this plan of being in direct communication and fellowship with God, now there's a separation. And that separation was caused by sin. And we go on and we see that, you know, sin only increases. Not only, you know, did they eat the forbidden fruit, but now you have the story of Cain and Abel. You know, there's actually, there's murder in the world. And it goes on and on, gets worse and worse. And it kind of reach, reaches a pinnacle to where God has to do something about it. You know, sin is now in the world. And so the punishment for sin, obviously, is death. We read about that in the New Testament where it says the wages of sin is death. And death, it's basically just a separation because of something that we have done we can no longer be in direct uh, fellowship with the Lord. And so something needs to be done. So God decides, you know what? The sin has just abounded so much. I'm going to go ahead and wipe it all out. But I kind of like Noah. There's something about Noah that he's done. Now, Noah was not perfect, but he had done something enough that pleased the Lord. And so, you know, it's believed that he probably just worshiped God the way that God desired to be worshiped. And so God just decides he's going to wipe out all his creation and start through this one, uh, with this one family. And so he starts through Noah. And so Noah, of course, you know, he brings all the animals in, um, great flood, everything's wiped out. What I love though, when, when Noah comes out of the ark, he recognizes that something needs to be done. There is an actual response that needs to take place. And so in Genesis uh, chapter 8, verse 20 to 21, it says, then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, and you think of that, you hear aroma a lot of times when you, when you think about worship. And so when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma or this worship, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from, from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. So we see here with Noah that a covenant is made. God actually makes a promise. He says, because of your worship, because of your sacrifice, I will no longer decide to wipe out mankind as a whole. And I think it's, it's a good thing that that happened because look at some of the evil that, that we've studied through our history classes. Look at some of the evil that we see even today. I mean, you think back to, you know, things like the Holocaust, you think back to the Crusades, and now you see the things that it seems like you can't even go on your phone without, you know, some kind of news feed coming across about, you know, a bombing and 85 people dying here, the stuff in Orlando, the stuff in Paris, there's just nonstop things are happening. 
And you wonder, man, if I was God, I would just wipe out mankind again and start over again. But because of this covenant, because of this promise, even though we're living in a world that is abounding with sin, that is very displeasing to God, because of this covenant that God made, we're spared. And I want to talk a little bit more about this idea of sacrifice. In Leviticus 4.35, it says, And all its fat he shall remove, as the fat of the lamb is removed from the sacrifice of peace offerings. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on top of the Lord's food offerings. And the priest shall make atonement for him, for the sin which he has committed, and he shall be forgiven. And jumping into the New Testament, in Hebrews 9.22, it says, Without the shedding of blood... There is no forgiveness of sins. So we see in order for there to be atonement for our sins, something has to be done. There is a debt. Our sin created that debt, much like we have that debt in other areas of our lives, that financial debt. And the only way for that ever to be gone is not to make little incremental payments, but for it to actually be paid in full. And I think of this idea of, you know, animals being used in sacrifice. You know, I've got, we've got three children. They're 11, 9, and 7. I think if we were living in that time, how hard that journey would be where you go to Jerusalem every year. Imagine having, you know, a baby sheep and watching your, your kids feed the sheep, play with the, play with the little baby lamb, you know, watch and get excited as it learns to walk and learns to run. And then you tell your kids you're going to take this journey and you're going to head to Jerusalem and you start walking and your, your kids are taking turns walking this baby lamb all and, you know, each step getting closer and closer to Jerusalem, and the kids maybe not fully understanding what's going to happen to this little lamb. And so as you, you walk through the city gates, you get into Jerusalem, and you approach the temple, and the father goes, and this, this little innocent, perfect, spot-free animal that the kids are completely in love with. I can only imagine the tears when you tell your children that now I'm going to take this lamb because of the bad things you've done, and we're going to go kill him. Like, that's not going to sit well, but in reality, that, that's what's happening. And so imagine, imagine the heartbreak, you know, in, in a kid's eyes. I remember being, uh, you know, an adolescent and getting in trouble and totally blaming it on my younger brother. And my mom asking me a question, did you do this? And I'd be like, nope, he did. And then watching my brother get punished and the, the guilt and the shame when, when your brother's getting spanked and you're like, oh, I am the worst person ever. He is getting punished for something that I did. And that's exactly what's happening here. You know, and this, this poor, innocent little creature is taking on and shedding its blood for our sin, not for its sin. And the thing about this is even with this, with this, uh, this sacrifice happening, it doesn't fully pay our price in full. All it does, it's like that credit card where you're using one credit card to pay off another bill. It's just making a little atonement for your sin. So it's just a temporary, a temporary fix. It's not really solving the whole problem. And so after Noah, we talk about, we kind of, each week we kind of race through one of these. I'll just touch on them real quick. I won't spend a whole lot of time, but we talked about the covenant that God makes with Abraham, a nation that will bless all nations. We talk about the nation of Israel. They become enslaved in Egypt, and God sends Moses to deliver them. God opens up the Red Sea. The people are free. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai, 
while Moses is up at Mount Sinai consulting with God, what do the people do? Do they stay down and worship God? No, they actually build a false god and start worshiping a golden calf. Once again, we're just forgetting about the purpose of creation and that we're supposed to be in fellowship and worshiping God. We result to our own sinful ways. So Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments. The law is introduced. The people of Israel demand a king. So God gives them a king. He gives them King Saul, then King David and Solomon. And we talked about how Solomon builds the temple, a temple for people to come and worship God. But it's very different than the way we worship today. Like today, you guys are able to come to church, you know, or your temple, and you can, you can freely worship. The way the temple worked before is there were the outer courts, and then the inner courts, and then a holy of holies. And it was the, the priest who could go in and intercede on our behalf and be in that holy of holies and be in communication with God. So we always had a priest acting on our behalf. So very different from the, the style of worship we're used to today. So after the temple's built, Israel splits into two kingdoms. They get conquered. The Israelites get carried off into captivity. And this is where we hear all the stories of Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. This is all while we're in the Babylonian captivity. And while Israel is in captivity, God is very active. God continues to speak to his people through the prophets. The prophets, they're giving warnings to the leaders and the kings, telling them that they need to turn from their false gods and, and put their trust and faith in the one true God. But of course, obviously, they don't, they don't heal to the, to the prophets' warnings. So these warnings go on for years and years through the prophets, and then something happens. For the next 400 years, God is silent. And sometimes, you know, if, sometimes when you're in trouble, you'd rather be yelled at. You'd rather have a prophet in your face saying, you need to do this, you need to do this. Sometimes when it's, when it's silent, that's the worst. You know, my wife and I, we have a great relationship, but I know when I'm really in trouble when she's silent. <laughs> you know, if, if I, where we usually have our, our, our things are, you know, on the road, because I'm a, a little bit more of an aggressive driver, and I like to encourage all the drivers around me to drive the way I do. And so that, that creates a, a conflict, you know, and if she harps at me and, you know, makes a comment or two, you know, I can roll with that. But if she just glares at me in silence, then I know, man, I really did something wrong. And so fortunately, that doesn't happen a lot. But I, I wonder, is that what's happening here with God's silence? Have we just hit a point where sin was so great and we had displeased him so much that he just like throws his hands up and he's like, I don't even know what to do with you guys anymore. And maybe there's this, this anger or maybe he's just being silent. But anyway, something very cool is about to happen here. But during this, uh, this 400 years of silence, it's not like God isn't there. It's not like Israel's not going through a whole journey. Uh, timeline right now, we're about 430 BC. The Jews have returned to Palestine from captivity. The Medo-Persian Empire still ruled Palestine. The temple has been rebuilt. Both the law and the priesthood of Aaron's line have been restored. The Jews have actually given up their, idol, their worship of idols, but they're still doing a lot of things that are uh, displeasing to God. They're, they're neglecting the temple. They're not tithing. They're marrying pagans. Um, they're treating their wives poorly. There's just a whole lot of things that are really breaking God's heart. In short, the Jews were not honoring God. In 333 BC, Palestine falls to the Greeks. Another 10 years later in 323 BC, they fall to the Egyptians. So there's a whole lot of movement going on with the nation of Israel, but yet God remains silent. And then finally, God speaks again. So let's jump into the, 
into the New Testament finally. After all this summer long, we can jump into the New Testament here. Luke chapter 1. You can join with me or follow along on the screen here in verse 5. And this would be the bulk of our text today, so I'll just read through here. So starting in verse 5, it says, In the time of Herod, king of Judea, so this gives us a great context of when this is happening. This is about uh, 30, they say anywhere between 30 B.C. to about 4 A.D. because that's during uh, King Herod's reign. So in the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. And if you recall, Aaron, that's where the priestly line comes from. So not only, the, not only Zechariah, but also his wife were from the priestly division. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God. And that sounds similar to how the view that we had on Noah. Observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Verse 11, the silence is finally broken. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and a delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born." He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. I love this. This is just so typical of us. Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. You have an angel speaking to you. I don't think you need to say, how can I be sure of this? Like, God has been silent for 400 years. You would think that if something so obvious as an angel in front of you saying, don't be afraid, this is what's going to happen, you'd be like, yep, okay, I'm good. But yet he's like, hmm, how can I be sure of this? It's not like he gets to talk to angels every day. So, of course, the little punishment's going to come along here. So the angel says to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, outside, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace from among the people. In verse 26, it says, In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel, the same angel, to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. 
Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked, since I am a virgin? The angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come on you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she who is said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month, for no word from God will ever fail. Then Mary answered, I am the Lord's servant. May your word be to me fulfilled. Then the angel left her. So here, God finally speaks after this long silence, and he speaks of the coming Messiah. First, we have the angel appearing to Zechariah, talking about his son, John, and the, the purpose of John. John is to become a prophet and to prepare the way for Jesus. And what John does, he starts baptizing. He starts baptizing in water. Uh, there's a, a kind of a following that people are going out to the wilderness to see, to see John, because what's happening in the hearts of the Israelites, they have been waiting for the Messiah. So anytime something different like this, somebody creeps up, somebody who might be from God, there's this, this curiosity factor. So they're sending people out, the teachers, the Pharisees, they're going out and they're questioning, John, who are you? Are you, say, Elijah? Are you a prophet? Are you the promised one? They're trying to find out, is this the person that we've been waiting for? There's this anticipation of the coming Messiah. Now, many Israelites believe that what they were hoping for when they, they, they read through the prophecies of, of the Messiah is they were waiting. You got to remember, this is a nation that's been in and out of captivity, getting taken over by Egyptians, getting taken over, you know, held in Babylon captivity for many, many years. What they're hoping for is a rescue. They want God showing up on a white horse and just slaying all their enemies, you know, the God of the Old Testament. You know, that's what they're, they're wanting to see all their en enemies just dispersed. And so they're waiting for that military, that political leader who's just going to basically come and save the day. But what happens is something so unexpected. We all know the story of Jesus. He comes as a baby. A little town in Bethlehem, kind of undetected. He's surrounded by, you know, just a few farm animals and a couple shepherds who come and visit him. This, there's no hero's welcome. There's no, here comes Jesus to save the day. It's this little baby that can't even take care of itself. And what we have, we have, because of going back to where we started today, we have this, we have this debt that needs to be paid. Because of our sin, there's this gap. And so Jesus is the answer to that gap. All these innocent animals that we've been taking and, and, and killing for the shedding of blood so there'd be forgiveness for our sins. We're waiting for this to be resolved, and this is what our need for a Savior is all about. is we learn about who Jesus was as a person. You know, what we, we don't have, all of, we don't have a lot, enough time today to really go over every single miracle and all the things that Jesus did. But what we know about Jesus, he was the son of God. He was loving, he was caring, he fulfilled the prophecies, he healed the sick, he came here as a light in a dark world. 
He came here with a plan, with a purpose, the same plan and purpose that God had from the very origin of the world for his people to be with him. And Jesus was the culmination of that plan. In 1 Peter 1, 18 to 19, it says, For you were not redeemed with corruptible things, but with the precious blood of Christ, as, as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And I love the first time that, that John the Baptist meets Jesus. He's just out there doing his thing, eating locusts and honey and baptizing people in, in the river. And along comes Jesus. And in John 1, 29, it says, the next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. And John's response was, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John immediately recognizes this is what we've been waiting for. This is the Lamb of God. And you think of a lamb, six months, eight months old, you know, getting slaughtered. It hasn't had time to become unclean. It hasn't had time to make whatever mistakes a baby lamb could make, you know. But we see, so why wasn't Jesus taken to the cross as a seven-year-old, you know, before he had all this opportunity to sin? And I think the reason Jesus is taken to the cross as an adult is for us. Because how easy would it be able to say, okay, so Jesus as an infant died for our sins, you know, how does that, how does that help me? Instead, what Jesus does, he takes on the form of a man. He becomes fully man, yet still fully God. And he experiences every kind of temptation that we go through as well. Jesus is out in the desert, and he's tempted um, you know, by Satan. And Satan actually tries to give Jesus a shortcut. He's like, instead of going to the cross and suffering like your father has planned for you, how about this? How about I give you all this now, and all you have to do is bow down and honor me? And so Jesus is tempted. He's fasting in the desert for 40 days, and, and Satan tempts him to, to turn, you know, the stones to bread. And so Jesus turns away from all these temptations, and we too are, are tempted in, in many ways. But we see Jesus going to the cross after having to face everything that we face in life as well. And yet he did it without spot, without blemish. Jesus was able to live the perfect life on earth, and therefore be the perfect atonement for our sins. And so the, I just want to jump through a couple quick scriptures here that you're very familiar with. Romans 10, 9 and 10 says, Whoever believes and confesses with their mouth that he is Lord, he shall be saved. You know, Jesus came here with a plan and a purpose to give you fellowship and communion with, with God. He had you in mind. And when he has you in mind, he's, he's not focused on, on your sin. He's focused on you as a person, who you are. He loves you. He wants to experience you. And so imagine right now that, that death that you were talking about at the beginning, beginning of today, whether it's, you know, $30,000, $60,000, $80,000, whatever that debt is, imagine that somebody walked in the room right now and had blank checks in here for everybody. And all you had to do was fill in the number. How much are you in debt? What, how would you feel? Would you just take that $60,000 and say thank you? No, there, there'd be more of a response. 
you would feel there's no way that I could pay that on my own right now. The only way is through that, through that payment from someone else. And that's what it is with Jesus right now. There is no way, there's nothing that you can do. The gap of your sin is so big that there is nothing you can do. It doesn't matter if you go to church every Sunday. It doesn't matter if you help old ladies across the street 24 hours a day. You are not getting to heaven without Jesus. It doesn't matter if you think, well, there's something awesome in the universe. I feel something when I'm in nature. I feel something when I do yoga. It doesn't matter if you do that and you think the universe as a whole is going to save me. The only thing that can save you, the only thing that can pay that price in full is the perfect, spotless Lamb of God. And we can have the band come up here while I close in this last, last thought. When a debt like that is paid on your behalf, a response is necessary. And I just want to share a quick little story of two people. And this is in Luke 23. It says, two other men, both criminals, both obviously guilty, were also led out with Jesus to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, They crucified Jesus there, along with the other criminals, one on his right, one on his left. Jump down a couple of verses to verse 38. It says, there was a written notice above him which read, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him and said, aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him and said, don't you fear God? Since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he, then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him and said, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And so in closing, you're either one of two men. We all see this sacrifice happening. These two men, they're, they're right on the, one on his right, one on his left, both experiencing this sacrifice taking place right before their very eyes. One person hurls insults and says, if you are God, prove it and save me, not realizing that what Jesus is doing on the cross is proving it and saving him. And then the other man realizes you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And what I love so much about, about this, he says, Jesus, remember me when you, when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says, truly, today, I will tell you, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus doesn't say, well, actually, it's a bit too late for you. How are you ever going to go to Sunday school? How are you ever going to pay your tithes? He doesn't go through this list. Jesus says, truly, today, you will be with me. It's, it's as simple as that. If you ask the Father to remember you, You make him the Lord of your life. You will be with him in paradise. And that completes, that completes the whole thing. We talk about the Garden of Eden being in paradise. The whole intent is for us to be with God, living, communicating, worshiping together with him. And by you acknowledging who Jesus is as the Christ, it completes the redemptive plan for your life. 
And in a couple weeks, we're going to start talking more about once you've made that commitment, what you're able to do to the world around you and what, what God is doing today through the church. But for, you, for where you are, where you fit in this redemptive story, you need to make that commitment. You're one of two thieves. What are you going to do? How are you going to respond?